You are listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues based on the principles of the Baha'i Faith. If you'd like specific information on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today you will be listening to a recorded interview with Dr. John Woodall, a Baha'i who lives in Lunenburg, Massachusetts. John is a psychiatrist and is founder of the Unity Project. I began the interview by asking John what the Unity Project is. The Unity Project is my effort to try to do something to to help build the resilient strengths of kids in particular after a crisis. In particular, I'm interested in how do we how do we help kids become competent members of their communities and the larger world as a whole in the face of some of the the crises that we're looking at, terrorism, economic disturbances, the the kinds of day-to-day crises that kids face in school every day, how do we bring out their strengths? And how do we then build united communities around those strengths? So the Unity Project is a series of educational programs for kids to try to achieve those goals. And how did it get started? Well, let's see. I'm a psychiatrist by my training, and for the last, oh, 15, well, pretty much 20 years I've been working in very uh, difficult situations uh, in in war zones, in areas of natural catastrophe, with populations that have been pretty severely traumatized in one way or another. It's really a great honor to be able to work with in this kind of work as a psychiatrist because you you get to see the the hidden strengths of people that in ordinary conversation you rarely see or hear about. And so what occurred to me over time is that two things. The first was that it's absolutely impossible to think about a a complete psychological recovery from a natural catastrophe or something even more heinous, something more awful like a war. The, The kinds of problems a war experience presents to someone is much more than can be met with the mental health model or mental health theories or mental health systems the the needs are far 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 greater there aren't enough psychiatrists in the world to take care of Sarajevo let alone all of Bosnia or Rwanda or you know pick your pick your spot or or the or kids in New York City um, so uh, it occurred to me that we have to rethink the way we approach these things if someone's been through a horrible experience they're not necessarily mentally ill so a mental health response isn't necessarily the way we should be thinking about these things. So I thought, well, why don't we begin with these strengths that people show, these wonderful demonstrations of courage, of hope, of, of loving service in the face of horrible things that people have experienced. Why don't we build on strengths and develop programs that come from that beginning as opposed to assuming that people are mentally ill or have pathologies? Over the last 20 years or so, I've found that starting this way has a lot of benefit, not just for the individual, uh, for the individual person, but you can also use these strengths as ways to unite people. And so we've developed 
programs that, uh, um, for instance, a few years ago, I, I worked with a group of women from uh, from Bosnia. They were Bosnian Muslims, Bosnian Catholics, Bosnian Orthodox Christian, and Bosnian Jews. This was at the Harvard School of Public Health. We did this a few years ago. I was asked to facilitate a discussion between these women just to see what would come up. And there are so many forces working against these people, so much history, so much pain, that just simply rehearsing all the psychological woe and the, and the pain and the, and the suffering and the loss, it, it, it all looks hopeless and impossible to, to move ahead. So if, if we start from that point, it just seems to build incredible, um, well, it just all seems much more difficult and hopeless. Mm-hmm. Some very courageous people go that way, and it can be very fruitful. But if you're talking about a large population, how do you move a, a, a large group of people through a horrible experience and, and maintain a sense of unity? What we did is we, we had a, a conversation about the strengths that made these women willing to even talk to each other in the first place. And there were things like, well, I wanted I want to help my my children so that they don't have a, an experience like this themselves, or or I lost a loved one and I, I want to give meaning to their to their life. If there's only if there's some way in my life I can do something that makes their loss meaningful, then I want to do that. Or if if only in some way I can give back to my community. So you had all these motives, which were very tender and and wonderful motives, but these people across ethnic backgrounds, across religious backgrounds, they all had the same motives. And so we began a discussion from that point of view. And it turns out that it it developed a really profound sense of cohesion. Mm. We didn't deny the things they had been through, but we talked about the strengths and the noble character traits that got them through it and that gave them a, a, an ongoing sense of hope. So the Unity Project grew out of experiences like that, that um, brought some methodologies to that kind of philosophy. So we found that using the arts and using service, helping other people, as the two ways in which you can get the fastest to those motivations. The, the, um, um, so that's the way we developed those, uh, uh, those methods. Mm-hmm. There, there's one other thing that came up, um, and this is important. Right after 9-11, about a year after 9-11, I was asked to, by the city of New York, um, a particular agency in New York City called the Department of Youth and Community Development. I, I was asked by them to help them think through um, what they should be doing with kids in New York City. Every kid in the city had drawn a picture of the towers coming down and what they were doing that day, but, but they weren't quite sure what to do next. So they heard about the work that I was doing with resilience and this idea of resilience, what that word means is uh, uh, they're the strengths we use to get through a difficulty. So instead of looking at the, the, the negative things or the weaknesses, but resilience means the strengths that you use in the face of a crisis. So what kind of resilient programming could we put in place in New York City to help the kids after 9-11? That was the question. So... <clears throat> I said basically the same thing, that a mental health model is helpful, but it's not enough. That for me, the biggest issue was what happens to people right after a crisis, where you see that um, 
there's a tendency for people to want to find meaning for their suffering, for want to, wanting to pull together in some way, wanting to give of themselves in some way. And so people will find the things that they're most comfortable with, their, their ethnic group, uh, an idea of their nationality, their race, their neighborhood, to, to latch on to. And uh, remember right after 9-11, people were talking about, oh, we're all one, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, united we stand. Mm-hmm. But right after that, it all seemed to fall apart. Before you knew it, you know, well, we're all one, except you're not quite one enough with us, or you're, 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 you know, you're not democratic enough, you're not Republican enough, you're not conservative enough, you're not liberal enough, you're not black enough, you're not white enough. It's the, the, the sense of real connection and real unity didn't have a strong foundation. It was based more on fear and hope, or fear and anger, as opposed to, a real sense of our oneness, our, our, our human connection. Mm. So what what I mentioned to the people in New York City was is that what we can expect to see is initially there'll be this grand hope that we're all united, but then right after that, it'll start to cave in, mm. and you'll see extremes pop up where their people become more extreme in, in their whatever their political or social identification is. They'll become more democratic, more republican, more conservative, or liberal, or black, or white, or... Uh, or a fundamentalist or whatever. And that will be the the first step before you begin to see more social conflict be- when these groups come in contact with each other, and then even violence. Mm. So the, the, the people in the room from the city said, well, you know, we're already seeing that in the schools. We're seeing more violence. We're seeing more gang uh, violence. We're seeing more ethnic uh, uh, hatred um, uh, or an incidence of, of ethnic and racial uh, tension. Hmm. So I said the other option is when we see something really fundamental about ourselves and other people as a result of a loss, like something that happened in 9-11, where we see the, the real nobility of, of other people and that we all share that and that we build our, our sense of unity and togetherness on that sense not on a political hope or a or a or a social hope but on on a real understanding of our common humanity so i said the challenge to the city will be will be to say that right up front you know that we are one we are we are one as as people not just politically but because we all have this human dignity and um and then we need to help kids build the skills to know how to work in a world like that because it means now you have to know how to talk to someone who's different from you. You have to know how to uh, have a conversation across differences. Mm. So the Unity Project then was all about putting out that idea of our common dignity and then helping schools and community agencies help kids develop the skills to be able to live in a world like that. Mm. So the city was excited about it, and they said, okay, well, let's let's do something. So we put together something called the Healing Arts Project, which was launched at Gracie Mansion in uh, in New York in uh, 2003, and uh, March 2003, and we began a series of trainings for uh, after school programs all across the city. Um, a big conference at NYU, uh, work, working with the city, and the people we trained touch about a million kids a year. So this became the language for working in the city after 9/11 that we're we're all together in this we're you know and uh so I'm very proud of that that we we got that going. Mm. So that's one aspect of our work. Well, the other thing I mentioned a, a service learning part as well. 
what we're interested in is is helping kids have an authentic experience. That's the and what I mean by that is is we we talk at kids, we tell them what to do, we keep things very superficial, and they sit passively in school and have sort of information poured into them. But if you if you are trying to develop a, a kid's ability to make decisions, resilient decisions or character decisions, or to help a kid reason in a moral way, they have to be involved in the decision. They have to be engaged. Mm. So that means the kid can't be passive. You've got to make the kid has to be an active agent in their own growth. Mm. And so this means that you have to think about how do you get a kid engaged. So that's why we chose the arts and service is because when you're involved in the arts, you're you 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 have to be engaged. It's uh, it it pulls you into the experience right away. Mm. The other way to do that is to get a a, a student actively involved in doing something and and i use the word service to describe that so because once they're doing something they're not passive obviously so then once they're moving once they're engaged you can mold the experience in such a way that brings out the kinds of strengths they need to develop resilient character Mm. um or uh um you know, you could call it a moral education process too. I don't. Use, I don't often use the word word moral education, although it very much is moral education. And I can talk about that in a minute. But mm-hmm. let me tell you about the the, the service learning here in Lunenburg. Mm-hmm. The the school district asked us to um, uh, develop the Unity Project at the, in the local school district here in Lunenburg. Here in Lunenburg. Okay. So we've migrated from New, New York. York City. It, this and- was actually happening in parallel. What, they, what they're trying to do in the school district is what a lot of schools are trying to do, which is how do you develop a humane learning experience for kids in the face of the MCAS, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, standards-based learning, which is important, but it is kind of robbing the whole educational experience of kind of the meaning of education, you know, why we're here in the first place and what does it mean to be a human being. So we began a discussion, again, about this idea of kids being their own moral agents. How do you help a kid develop the capacity to make a positive decision? And by positive, we mean something that benefits them, that brings out their own nobility, but also builds on the nobility of others to build a you know, united community and the capacity for democratic citizenship. So um, so what we did in the, in the school is, for example, in the high school, every student in the high school received a survey we put together and it asks them, the first question is, what's the one thing you'd like to see changed in this school that would make your life better? And then the next question is, what strengths do you have that could make that happen? So what we're doing is is we're getting this flood of information from the kids about what they think is important. And then we're starting to be, help them to begin to think about what strengths they have, what 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 capacities for mobilizing their own dignity do they do they have? Mm-hmm. And then we bring the kids together in what we call action teams to um, address these issues. And then, like in the, what size of the action is they, the action they can team? be two people, they can be ten people. It just depends how many kids are interested in that particular topic. And there's no elected officials. There's no hierarchy. It's just all focused on getting something done. So out of out of the woodwork, we get kids who have no experience with being in any extracurriculars because we're not asking them to join anything. We're just asking them to change something they'd like to see changed. So we're really excited about that because we're getting a lot of kids who aren't the the 10% of kids who are the usual kids who are doing extracurriculars. Um, 
I, I have what I call the, the metalhead criteria, you know, the kid with the most metal, you know, plugged through their head. You know, the more of those we have, the, the more success we're, we're having because those are the kids who often have a lot to say, but they don't feel that they have a place or a voice in the school. They're disenfranchised. Yeah, Yeah, and often they're the most creative and dynamic in some ways. So we got, uh, or or other kids who just have never said a word in school because they're too shy or they don't see that they, you know, they don't really fit in socially with kids in a certain club or student activity. Mm. But here, since it's something they're interested in, we find that some of the barriers to involvement um, are are down so they, they can become involved. So then what we do is we bring the kids through a process of learning some of these positive decision-making skills as they go about trying to change these uh, these things that they say they're interested in. So that's the service-based part, and then the arts-based part is the part we've had going in New York City. Mm-hmm. We started it at the Lunenburg High School. Next week, we're beginning to roll it out to five other schools in the area, and then over the course of the next year, we'll roll it out through New England mm. and then nationally. You know, I mentioned earlier, like with in with the high school in Lunenburg, um, seeing kids who have previously had no experience or found if they haven't found a place in the school where they can have a voice. Um, you know, I'm I'm thinking of the of the of the five goth kids last year with the you know the nose pierced and the tattoos and the you know and the dark eye makeup and stuff who who. Uh, could barely have eye contact with me, but did a, but sat in this group and worked really hard on changing the way the cafeteria was organized. And these kids had never been involved in anything before. And in fact, some of them had really drastically different ideas from each other, uh, very right wing, very left wing. But they found a way to talk to each other, to get something done together. And so they built a lot of bridges. And uh, they here they are now. They they have a a, a track record of of a huge success mm. um, that w- w- was just not available to them before. Um, or there's another girl who uh, probably said two words the whole time she was in high school. She's now graduated, but she re- she restructured the whole. She and her group restructured the whole menu in the cafeteria, you know. And uh, she was very proud, and we mm. were very proud of her. Mm-hmm. So, in in New York, I'm thinking of of the the, the Youth Arts Week that they had. It was, it was called Youth Week, actually, mm-hmm. uh, when the Unity Project, when we had the Healing Arts Project there, and um, schools that that put on whole plays about um, uh, how we need to be together and work together and and uh, and not let our differences be uh, divisions between us. Things that just bring tears to your eyes. Mm. That they're mm. just—they're just—it it seems to me that kids are just looking for a way to mm. say these things. They want adults to give them uh, the opportunity to mm. say what every heart really wants, which is that we're all to, in this together, and that mm. we're—and that it's a world that they want to be able to trust and they want to be able to hope in. Mm. Um, so that's really what the Unity Project is about—is trying to build a place where where kids can hope. Mm. I had been running a, a conflict resolution program in California and um, was interested in how uh, how do we build united communities. That was really my, you know, after the Berlin Wall fell and all these communist countries fell, I mean, how do we rethink, you know, what's next, you know? And I was talking about how ethnic tensions were probably going to be the thing of the 90s, the, how we handled ethnic tensions. 
and so did a lot of work in Bosnia and um, wound up living over there for a year in the mid-90s, running a training program for the, uh, the State Department on training um, clinicians on how to work with, with traumatized populations. And that had a lot to do with getting the Unity Project started, mm. just seeing the the huge amounts of money thrown at well-intended projects that have limited effectiveness. And we really need to think much deeper and much wider about how how we reconstruct a, 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 a world in pain, you know. Mm. So, so the Unity Project again is just sort of my my uh, effort at that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. along with a lot of other people's efforts. Okay. If somebody wants to get in touch with you about the Unity Project, mm-hmm. what's the best way to do that? The, we have a website. It's www.unityproject.org. It's uh, uh, on the day that we're recording. It's down. Mm-hmm. But it will be up very shortly, and we'd be happy to hear from people mm-hmm. and uh, learn from their experience and see what we can do to to provide help for what they're doing. And mm-hmm. um, we're yeah. pretty excited about uh, the prospects. I asked John to share some of the experiences he had as a psychiatrist that inspired him to found the Unity Project. In 1992 and three, I was doing work with the War Crimes Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. It actually wasn't a tribunal yet. It was a commission. And I was in a um, uh, collecting war crimes evidence in a uh, a town called Karlovac, Croatia, which is where tens of thousands of people from Bosnia had poured over the, the border uh, as refugees as the, uh, the Bosnian Serbs were sweeping through that area. And uh, these were people who just hours before some of them had just been burned out of their homes or had their, their, their fathers shot and their mothers raped and their sisters raped and their grandmothers raped or had been guns put to their heads and say, rape your mother or I'll shoot your father, you know, this kind of hideous, hideous thing done to these people. And um, so here they were in this uh, army barracks that had been converted into a, a, a refugee center. And uh, I had been there right after all these things began, uh, before any refugee camps had been set up. But now I was back a few months later, and we were collecting evidence. So I had my little handheld tape recorder and a, 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 a Croatian translator with me, a good friend who's a, also a psychiatrist. And uh, after collecting about two hours' worth of stories from the men in the room, oh, the room was, uh, there were six floors of rooms, and each floor had six rooms in it, and each room was um, probably a, a hundred, no, let's see, probably um, 200 feet by 40 feet, something like that, big rooms, mm. they're barracks. And it was filled with several hundred people, and there was a, uh, a sort of a, a, a closed line that had um, blankets demarcating the women from the men, and then there were three bunk beds, or three-story bunk beds lining the whole place. And the men were doing all the talking, telling stories about pe- people who had, they had seen shoot people as they came off a bus or places that had been firebombed and horrific kinds of stories. Yeah. And as this was going on, I noticed the kids were right there in the room listening to this whole thing. And a part of me is thinking, man, somebody's got to get these kids out of here. They shouldn't be hearing this. And then I thought, what am I saying? These kids were there. This is their story. These adults are just saying the words for what these kids saw. It's mm. not 
So uh, I thought that the discomfort was mine. It wasn't theirs. They, they, they were happy to have someone hear this because part of the big issue with a crisis or a trauma like this is that you can't find words to express the horror of what you've been through. So finding words for these experiences is actually the first step for being of it being helpful. Mm. So after, a, again, a few hours of these stories... I thought, well, I got to do something for these kids. We, you know, this is, you know, this is too much. So, I I resorted to a cheap trick that I learned in, in from my college roommate, <laughs> which is a little magic trick. When I, I I I took a ring off, and uh, um, I had had the kids draw pictures of their experience in their homes, and they had drawn horrific pictures of um, mines that had been. Uh, bombed after the, all the men in the village had been put in them, you know, uh, you know the, the the towns being destroyed by planes and tanks and very vivid, bloody pictures they had drawn for me, and I and I, I thought, well, you know, I'm not just a neutral collector of information. I have some training, and I I, sh- I have to do something. So, I. Uh, uh, again, I resorted to a, a cheap trick, and so I—it's a little disappearing thing where you know you can make a coin disappear and pop out of a kid's ear or a ring. So I had a ring, and I asked this little boy—he's about six—to come over, and uh, oh, he had been my helper. I—I I had uh, when I had the kids do all these drawings. Bronomir, this young boy, six years old maybe. He was the, the the crayon keeper and the and the paper keeper. So he would you know hand them out. The rules were three rules. Uh, you can have three crayons, and if you want it, second rule is if you want one, you have to ask. And the other other part of that is you you need to share. So don't hog all the crayons. And then the third rule was no hitting. <laughs> so those are the three rules. So Bronomir was the umpire, you know, helping all these other kids, some ten years old, some twelve, fifteen years old. And how old is how old? He was six. Wow. So that has a lot of power in that little kid. But he did a great job. <laughs> and um, so after the, I'd seen all these pictures, I, I uh, said to Bronimir, here, come here, you know, I want to show you something. So I showed him the ring, and I, I, I uh, did the trick and, and had him blow on my hand, and he blew on my hand, and the ring was still in my hand. I said, no, no, you, you, you didn't blow hard enough. You have to blow harder. And so he did it again. He blew harder, and it and the, it, the ring was still in my hand. I said, no, "We're not doing something right." So he was looking at me, kind of confused. And so I took the ring. I said, "The problem is we don't have any of your magic on this ring." So then I rubbed it on his stomach, and I said, "Okay, now I'm I'm getting your magic on the ring because every kid's got magic." So we did it again. I had him blow this time, and the ring was gone. And we looked all over for it, and now, of course I found it because it was sticking out of his ear. And I pulled it out of his ear, and uh, now I had his attention. And all the other kids saw it, and well, did I do that again? Do that. So I had this time. I had all the kids blow on my hand, and the ring didn't disappear. And I said, "Well, what? How come it didn't disappear?" And this one girl said, "Well, because you didn't get our magic." I said, "Oh, of course." So then I rubbed it on all of their stomachs, and got the, you know the ring was vibrating and had so much magic in it. And then had them all blow, and of course my hand was bathed in, in you know, kids blowing in my hand, <laughs> you know. And then the, my hand opened up, and there's no ring because that's a lot of magic, you know. So they blew the ring, God knows where. We looked in everybody's ears, couldn't find it. Looked in people's socks, looked in the baby's diapers, looked everywhere. And all the way on the other end of the room, there was this old lady who was holding a, an infant. So I said, oh, we didn't check over there. So we ran all the way over to this old lady, and <laughs> I asked permission to, you know, check the baby. Nope, no ring. 
So I said, excuse me, Isvolite, you know, can, can I look a little more around you? She said, okay. So I, the ring w- was in the old lady's ear. Well, that was, that was the kids were just <laughs> losing it over that one. So when we got back, we said, okay, now I get it. You guys have taught, have taught me something very important. It says you all have magic, but you have a whole lot of magic when you use it together. So when you're in a situation like this, mm-hmm. you need that kind of magic. This is very important magic. We really need to figure out how to work together because that's the thing, you know, that's mm-hmm. going to help us get out of a situation like this. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Just do the trick again. Just so they, <laughs> they didn't want to. They just they just wanted to do the magic trick. So I started talking about well, you know, maybe there's something to this. If we all work together, maybe it could even make peace. Maybe it, it could make. It could help recreate the world if we figured out a way to work together like this. And they're looking at me, well, maybe that's true. Okay, yeah, but do the trick again. <laughs> and <laughs> so we ju- I just kept sort of talking about, you know, the, the possibilities if we were to work together. Mm-hmm. And this one 14-year-old boy who never moved, he, he was up on one of the, the uh, uh, bunks in the, in the mm-hmm. triple bunk beds. He's about 14. He looks over at me and he says, I want the magic to kill all the Chetniks. And the Chetniks are the Bosnian Serbs, the people who did this to them. And you could hear a pin drop in the room. Every kid was looking right at him and then right at me. Like, What are you going to do? Now what? I'm thinking, that's what I'm I'm thinking. What am I going to do? How do you answer that? And really, this is why I went over there. It's like you can have these sort of philosophies and theories, but can it work in a situation like that? And if it can't, you really don't have any business being there. So uh, this was kind of the moment of truth. So I said, oh, my God, help me. So I said, you know, it makes sense to me that you would want to kill all the Chetniks. Look at this place. Look where you are. You know? But it's got to end someplace. You probably know better than anyone in the world what it costs to have a war. You know what the costs are. But you also know what it would mean to have peace. If you told the world what it would be like to work together, people would listen to you because of what you've been through. They won't listen to me because who am I? But you are an expert. You could be someone who could change the world. If you, if you could figure out a way to, for us to work together and you could say that to people, they would listen to you. But what if they come into your house with guns? And he's shaking when he said it. And you know what? They probably did come into his house with guns. House with guns. He wasn't. He wasn't arguing with me. He wanted. An, he was looking for an answer. He couldn't figure this out for himself. What do you do? They come into your house with guns. And I said, uh, that had to be terrifying. But again, you're here now. You're not there. But somebody's got to be able to speak for a better world. Otherwise, we're all going to be in rooms like this someday is the answer for them to be refugees and then then how are you going to feel but what if they come into our house with knives that's what he said they did come into his house with knives god knows what they did with those guns and knives when they came into his house and their kids were crying their kids were looking at me mm. they're, they're, this is so i said okay this kid doesn't need an intellectual answer he doesn't need a theory or a philosophy this kid's afraid he needs he needs something different and i said you know you're right. Right now, I don't know that there's a good answer for that. Look where you are. Look at this place. It's cold. It's the middle of February. You don't have all of your family here. Maybe you've lost relatives. You've lost everything you have. You don't know if you can trust the other people in this room. You're afraid. You're hungry. This isn't the time for an answer. But there'll be a time when you're out of here, 
where it's warm and you're safe and you can trust the people around you and you can feel safe. And I think when that time comes, you'll be able to sit and think about this. And the best part of yourself can think because you won't be afraid and you won't be hungry and you won't be cold. So maybe at that time, you'll be able to make a decision that you can be proud of. Mm. And then I thought, oh, yeah, I don't know if that's anywhere near a good answer. And I, but the room was quiet, very quiet. But I didn't know he was thinking about it. In this quiet, he was thinking. And the room stayed quiet for several seconds. And all of a sudden, he bolted up out of this bunk and he said, Yes, I want this magic. I want to make peace. I want this magic. And the whole room is like a Capra movie. All these kids went, Yay! <laughs> and they cheered. Like, what the heck? What just happened? And they, they all wanted that. They all wanted that, but wanted to know how can you have that after what we've been through. And this 14-year-old hero mm. showed them, I can make that decision. I can make that decision. I don't have to be a victim of hatred and loss and bitterness. I can make another decision. And it's, there must be something in, in all of us that wants that. Because why else would these kids have cheered? Right. It must be in them. They want it. Right. They just want someone to show them how. So that's what this little boy did. But that's the thing. That's in all of us. Yeah. How do you unlock that? That's the question. Right. Yeah. So we don't need a religion that just is a set of doctrines or a set of theories, as nice as they are. We need that in some level. But what we really need is we all need to feel that our life is connected to the, to the rest of life. Mm. That there's hope for us, that our life has meaning, that we can make a choice that we feel noble, ennobled by and connected to others by. Mm. So, and that has to be something that's alive in us. Otherwise, it's just another theory. Right. It's just another exactly. dogma. We don't need any more dogmas. Yeah. I asked John to share one more experience that brought him to founding the Unity Project. He chose to share the experience he related to earlier about his facilitating a dialogue between women traumatized by the Balkan conflict. Well, this is a group of women brought together by a woman by the name of Swanee Hunt, who used to be the U.S. ambassador to Austria. But now she, she started at Harvard something called Women Waging Peace at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. And so she had done a lot of work for for Bosnia and for the Bosnians over the course of the war and after. So this is now three or four years ago, and uh, she had brought together women leaders from different religious and ethnic groups to Harvard to see if there's some way they could build some sort of discussion amongst each other. Very modest goal. And they asked me to facilitate the discussion. So we met at Swanee's house. It was a February, it, it was February uh, 13th, the day before um, Valentine's Day. And I have to back up a little bit to tell you a story of a Baha'i woman by the name of Sarah Harrington who lived in Lexington, Massachusetts. And Sarah was a dear, dear friend who uh, uh, had battled with uh, ovarian cancer and had a remission. And a few months before this, I had seen her about November or so, and we were talking, how are you doing and things. On the weekend before these women from Bosnia came to the to America, I got a call from Sarah. It was Thursday, and she said, "John, um, you know this." And I had known that the cancer had had uh, returned, 
much more aggressively the second time. And Sarah called me and she said, John, I, I really don't know what uh, what uh, my future holds. I, I don't know for sure if I'm going to beat it this time. In fact, I know I'm not, I'm not sure at all that I'm going to, and I'm not sure why I'm still here even. I feel like everything's taken care of with the kids, with Hamed, my husband. I, I'm not... I'm content if it's my time. I'm not looking for, I'm not saying I want to die, but if it's my time, I'm, I'm content with it. But if that's the case, I'd like to ask if you would speak at my funeral. Well, I was just so touched by that. And I said, well, Sarah, what an honor. Of course I would be, but I, let's talk more about your health. Maybe there's something we can do. Let's talk about, you know, other things you've, you've done so much in your life. Let's, there's gotta be reasons for you to be here still. And, and I didn't want to think about her dying. But uh, she said, well, you know, uh, well, why don't we just, let, let's talk more. So why don't you come over on this weekend? Um, I said, okay, well, why don't I come over Saturday? She said, no, I have some friends coming over Saturday. Uh, why don't you, uh, why don't we, like, have a brunch on Sunday? To come, like, late in the morning on Sunday after everybody's up. So okay. So um, Sunday morning, I called about 10 o'clock, just to call first before coming over. And um, someone who I was not familiar with answered, and I said, hi, this is John Woodall. Is uh, is Sarah there? And she said, well, no, I'm sorry, but Sarah left us late last night. <sighs> she passed away. Now, this is the day before these women from Bosnia come. Now, the next day, on Monday, all these women come from Bosnia, from these different uh, religious and ethnic backgrounds of Bosnian Serbs, who are Orthodox, Bosnian Muslim, Muslim, Bosnian Catholic, who are Croatian, and Bosnian Jews. And uh, so we met in Swanee's living room, beautiful, beautiful room. And uh, Swanee very graciously welcomed them and, and talked about her religious background in Texas, where as long as you were part of her church, you were wonderfully accepted and loved. But if you were from anybody else's church, that wasn't the case. And she said, well, that can't be true. There's got to be a way for us to learn how to talk to each other across our differences. So that's, let's figure out a way to do that. And then she said, John is going to explore that with you. So when we sat down together, I, I said, you know, you know, they're a little intimidated. It's Harvard. I'm a psychiatrist. I got a tie on. You know, it's a Swanee Hunt. She's an ambassador. You know, so I said, you know, let's just forget all those things for now. Let, let's just get in the way. I, so I took off my tie and I said, let's forget about the tie. Well, it turns out ties for the, that group of people has a meaning because um, a, a kravat, uh, the Croatians say kravat. The, the, they, they call themselves Hrvatska, uh or the country is Hrvatska. Um, in the in hundreds of years ago, when there were the Croatian missionary uh, mercenaries were going around Europe fighting in other people's wars, they had these funny frilly things around their necks, and so people said, "Oh, here are the cravats," so because they had these things. So a cravat, what we now know as a cravat, is a tie, comes from Croatia. They're the Croatian mercenaries. So a tie, taking off a tie, was also not just taking off a professional you know, uniform, but it was also saying, I'm not identified with any ethnic group. 
Okay, so it had special symbology there. So I said, let's just forget about the tithe. In fact, forget about the doctor, forget about the Harvard. I'm just John. Let's just, for this week, let's let each other off the hook. You don't have to represent your organization or your ethnic group or your religion or your country. All you have to do is speak about your own experience. You don't have to, let's not let all that other stuff get in the way of our exploring. So I said, let's talk about what brought you here. Because I don't really get it. You know, here you've had horrible things happen to you. And you're willing to come all the way here to uh, to talk to each other. There's got to be some hope that you have, some vision or something. I'm, I'll use the word hope, but I'd like to know about that hope because I need hope in my life. So what, what hope do you have that something will come of this? What, what do you, what, what's your wish? Mm. Well, they said, well, let's see. Um, one woman said, well, I'm thinking there's, if there's some way I could help the children that I work with so that they could have something better, maybe something more like I remember the old Yugoslavia where everybody got worked together. They, they need to know what that's like, and maybe I can do something to help that. Okay. Someone else said, well, you know, I lost my husband, and I, 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 it can't be for this kind of a reason. It's got, we've got, I've got to give some meaning to that loss that... It says something better about who we are and who I am and who he was. And someone else said, "Well, you know, I'm just, I'm just so grateful for all the things that have been done for me. I feel like I need to pay back something." So we went around the room, and they all had these wonderful statements about hopes that they had. And this one woman, who herself had risked quite a bit being there, she was the editor of a newspaper that she had been threatened by members of her own ethnic group for coming mm. because she was talking to the other side. She was talking to the enemy. So she wasn't threatened by the other side. She was threatened by her own side. And by threatened, I mean threatened with death. I mean, there would have been firebombs thrown at her at her uh, newspaper because she was coming to this meeting. So you know, they all smoke and they have these deep voices and they're, they're kind of tough-as-nails women, you know. They're just no BS. You know, she said, I have no hope. What is this hope? This hope is this is a fantasy that you have. This is a dangerous thing, this hope. We don't need hope. We need reality. We need justice. We need no hope. This is more, these are the things that politicians use to, to manipulate us. We don't need these things. They play on our, your hopes and then they manipulate you. And before you know, there's another war. We don't need any hope. I have no hope. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, all right. So, so, all right. Well, you know what? If you put it that way, I don't have any hope either. That's you're right. I don't have any. I don't have any hope. I said, but maybe hope's not the word. I said, but there's something that brought you here because you risked your life to come here. So if it's not hope, I don't know what it is. But you don't have to tell me what it is. You should know what it is. You should know what that is because you just risked your life for it. Whatever it is, hope something else. You you come up with the word. Maybe it's a better word in Serbo-Croatian than in English. But if you figure out what it is, you should tell me. But I don't need to know. You need to know. She said, okay. <laughs> so you need a person like that because they'll keep you honest. You know, she does, It's this point about ideology. Ideologies are not going to unite the world or dogmas are not going to unite or false hopes are not going to unite the world. It's got to be real. Mm. It's got to be what this little boy that kind of a choice. It's got to be something mm. when you see the, the full consequence of what you're choosing, you do it anyway. 
So by the end of this session, everyone was very kind of comfortable with each other. And some came up to me and said, you know, that's very interesting. I never would have thought of a conversation like that. But this is good. You respect us. We, we feel we can have a conversation. Possibility. Something's possible here. And I told them that on Wednesday, I was going to have to go to the funeral of my friend who passed away. So we'd, we would probably meet a little earlier that day. The next day was Valentine's Day. And again, I'm not beyond cheap tricks. And they're all women. <laughs> so I went and I bought white roses for everybody. <laughs> not red, white. And uh, we sat in a big circle. And I said, you know, I, it's kind of obvious. It's transparent. I'm a man. You're all women. I bought you roses. So you can read anything you'd like into it. But here's what I'm thinking. I want to give you all a rose. We're all sitting in a circle. And I said, you taught me so much about hope yesterday. I really want to know more. I'm thirsty to know more about the roots of your hope. How do you, why do you hope that? What makes you hope this? Why aren't you hoping to make a lot of money and take advantage of the situation and just get your own life together? Why, are you, why do you have this hope? Did somebody love you in some way? Someone was an example for you? Something. There's some root of that hope. What I'd like you to do is take your rose and tell me, as much as you feel comfortable saying, about where your hope comes from. And then when you're done, you'll pass the rose to your right, and then we'll go around the circle, and everyone will have a chance to speak, and then the roses will go around too. So they started, and they, they, they talked about, uh, again, the, yeah, the, this, this one woman talked about this man whom she loved. She never married, but he died in the war, and that she's just heartbroken over his loss. And, uh, uh, you know, the way she f is going to fulfill that, all that he taught her about humanity and about love, this is her only way she knows how to do that, is by continuing that. Everybody's crying, you know, and she's crying. And then this other woman talking about, you know, when she was a child, neighbors had been very kind to her, and, you know, and, and someone else talked about their grandmother and their mother, and this one woman who hadn't really said much of anything since the day before, she said, oh, you're making me say things I don't want to say, because I really wasn't making her say anything. She started crying, but then she started to talk about another woman in the room who was a Bosnian Muslim, and she was a Bosnian Croat, about how during the middle of the war, when it was the worst, that other family, who was at great risk, because they were the ones being killed, mm -hmm. uh, protected her from the Bosnian Muslims, who were also warring. That, that, that family took care of her family and at their own peril. And... She talked about how much she loved this woman and how much she was grateful and there's no way she could repay her. And that, So she, there was this wonderful connection of loving support right there in the room with this beautiful history behind it. So she went on for about 10 minutes about this and then she stopped and just took this big sigh and said, oh, and you're making me say more and I don't want to say. I wasn't making her say more, but she had this thing she just wanted to say. And so she started again about how her love for this woman, for her family and all they had done and what they had done for her family and everybody's crying. It's, it's a beautiful, a beautiful time. And it's, it's this point that if you create a safe and trusting environment, okay, mm -hmm. you can't help but find that people pour their hearts out. If a person feels safe and they, it, it's a trustworthy safety that their dignity is being mm -hmm. safeguarded, you can't help people from being creative and pouring out their own hearts. So that's what had happened, that we had created this safe space. So now this wonderful stuff was coming out about the depths of their hearts. And it turns out these wonderful depth, they all had. 
and it didn't make any difference what ethnic background they were. They all had the same richness. And at the end of this morning session, we, there was just this palpable reality of how connected everybody was. That this is this could survive when they go back to Bosnia. Well, all the political stuff and things, the ideology is not going to hold them together, but this might, you know. So it was a wonderful sense. People felt very good, and but I didn't know that they had planned, the Kennedy School had planned for them all to go to a trauma clinic that afternoon. And if you want to send someone to a trauma clinic, that's sometimes the worst place to send someone who's been traumatized. If they get, if they if they go to see someone who doesn't know what they're doing, and that's what happened. These women went to this trauma clinic that was working with refugees, and this young therapist, uh, without creating that safety and trust, asked them to talk about their traumas. The worst possible thing she could do, because you never open up something you can't put back together again. So without creating any sense of safety or trust with her or anything, she's asking not not for their strengths or their hopes, but for, tell me about your, your trauma. It's the worst possible thing. So what happened, they reluctantly started to talk about things that were very uncomfortable, and afterwards they're all nipping at each other and kind of a, a, a uneasy. And later on that day, in, around dinner, two of them got into a really heated argument, name-calling so now Wednesday, I'm dressed in my my funeral suit. I'm going to go bury Sarah. I'm going to go speak at her funeral. At noon, we're meeting early that day, so I can we can finish early, so I can go. And I walk into the room, and and they're not talking to each other. They're all at different ends, you know, some slowly stirring little cups of coffee, and you know, and not talking. And there's a really awkward silence. And what the heck happened? <clears throat> so I asked one woman, "What, Georgita? What happened?" She said. Uh, I'm very angry at you. I said, well, why? She said, you, you made me uh, think about things I didn't want to think about. Of course, it wasn't me. It was the whole experience, and I was sort of representing the whole experience. So I said, well, what happened? She started to tell me a little bit about what happened. So we got the group together, and I said, well, what happened? Tell me. And one woman said, you know, this is a nice thing, and we're really grateful. We really are all grateful, but I think we'd just better go home. Thank you, though. And someone else said, "Yeah, it's you tried. It's a good thing. You, I know you're trying, but I think it's it's over. We should go home." I said, "What happened? What happened? Yesterday, when I left you, there was this wonderful sense of connection. The last thing you ever want to do to someone who has been despairing is to build a hope in them that turns out to be a false hope, because now." Substantiated. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Now, now their worst fears is that there can really be no hope, and in fact, this is how you create it, an extremist: is you you bury any sense of hope, and then what they do is they give themselves completely to despair and annihilation. That's where you get a suicide bomber, mm. where you get you know uh, someone who's willing to become a terrorist of some kind. Is you completely eliminate any chance of hope. So. I said, uh, well, let's talk about this a little bit. And so they went around in the room, and that's what basically what they said. They said, you know, we've done this. You know, it, it's nice that you're trying to do this, and, and, but it's just not working. We should really go, you know. And I said, okay. I said, let's think about this. I said, look at me. I said, I'm in, I'm in a suit. In a few hours, I'm going to be going to bury my friend. Sarah was a very remarkable person. 
um, pretty much singly. She had started in um, Lexington, uh, Massachusetts, something called a Institute for the Healing of Racism, which was actually started in, around Springfield yeah. by Nat Rudstein. Yeah. She had started one in Lexington, and in, in here, the cradle of American democracy, she, which had been racially divided, she began a community process of racial healing. Very unobtrusively, nobody saw Sarah as heavy-handed, but just by the force of her example and sincerity. Then she did the same thing with the religions in the town. She had started an interreligious uh, collaborative and uh, got the different religions talking to each other. So she was like the this very unassuming, loving, sincere woman, just by the power of her example, had been like a major transforming element in that community. And I said, I'm about to go eulogize my friend. I, I am not leaving. You know, I understand if you can go, or if you want to go. Very good people, just like you, have not gotten as far as you have in this discussion. So many people have failed in this. It just hasn't worked. So there's no shame if you go home right now. There's no shame and there's no sense of failure uh, if you decide to go. But I'm not going. Because of Sarah. I said, I can't go. So I said, and, and you, you should make your own minds up for what you want to do for yourself. So there was a silence. And Warren, it was just this simple. One woman looked to the other and said, okay, we'll stay. And they said, yeah, we'll stay. And they all looked around, yes, we'll stay. We'll stay, yes, we'll stay. <laughs> it was just, you know, it's that thing, if... Once they knew what the stakes were, once you help clarify what the stakes are, and it's a real thing, it's not an ideological thing, it's not a dogma, those can't carry you when push comes to shove. When, it, when you're really at that moment of choice, that's not enough. You need something that really touches your dignity, your sense of being as a, as a human being, your, your soul. Mm -hmm. And you have to make a decision from there but you can't do that until you've seen what the choices really are. And now they all saw what the choice was, and they, and they mm -hmm. could make the choice in that safe, trusting environment. And that's the wonder of this kind of work, is that if you create that safe and trusting environment, almost always people make this very courageous and ethical choice. So now we had this big conversation about you know about what that meant, what happened yesterday, what very very involved in dynamic discussion. So the next day, we were scheduled to speak to the United Ministries at Harvard, which are the, all the representatives of all the religions at Harvard University. And uh, uh, I, I happened to be the Baha'i representative at the time. Before we went in to meet with them in this beautiful room with a wonderful mantelpiece, you know, wooden mantelpiece and things and big wonderful room. Anyway, we were meeting uh, the, the, the Bosnian women and I, and that night, the night before, after we had had this session, on their own, they had decided, they had committed themselves to creating a coalition. Hmm. And they even had a name. They were, they were, they were called Strength in Diversity, and they were going to go back to Bosnia, and each one of these women was going to get 10 friends, 10 other colleagues, and we're all going to come together. They were then saying... What we'd like you to do is come back next month. We'll convene. Each one of us will bring 10 people, and we'll, we're going to start this interreligious coalition to talk about 
in, uh, interreligious, interethnic understanding, and we'll get all the women in Bosnia involved. They did that on their own. Mm. But the action, before they could get to that point of action, they had to be able to make a decision. And the decision had to be based on a knowledge of their own dignity mm. and about, you see, this knowledge, volition, and action. Mm. And they did that on their own. So now we walk in to meet with the, uh, the United Ministry ministers, and uh, these women sit, they're very graciously accepted, and they're served tea and things and, and coffee, and they, they are asked about their experience, and one woman says, well, we're very honored to be here because we know you have done so much about interreligious dialogue, and we're just now learning. Well, the truth is, as much as the Harvard United Ministries said it was about religious cooperation. It was more like just keeping each other in check so no religion got an advantage over the others. So the truth was these women had gone much farther. And so as they were talking about what their experience was and about the commitment and the love that they had for each other, the, the ministers started, I saw tears because they saw these women are the real ticket. We're just got the, the, the nice room and the and the positions, but these women are living it. Mm-hmm. It's a very moving t- time. So what happened was, is these women went back to Bosnia, and a month later, Swanee Hunt and myself and a few others went over, and they launched Strength and Diversity, mm-hmm. and uh, tr- developing interreligious dialogue amongst the women of Bosnia. So again, it's that idea that, uh, first of all, the power of a single example, Sarah's example, mm-hmm. even from the next world, yeah, yeah I, I said at the at the eulogy, I said, you know, I just left a group of, of women who Sarah, even from the next world, has just transformed. She, she, she's, she, her work is continuing. Mm. So all of these are at the root of the Unity Project. How do you tap into that wellspring of human hope and dignity, mm. the real hope? Not not the ideological or dogmatic hope, but the real thing. Mm. And I think what all this experience has shown me is that we have every reason to be confident about human nature. We have every reason to feel that there's there's uh, comfort and peace and joy to be found with each other. Mm. Um, because if folks, if people in this these kinds of environments can find it and build on it, then we can, and we can teach our kids. In the day-to-day crises they have in school with a bully or, you know, with a, something at home, we can teach them the skills to know how to do that mm. so that they can weather these things in a way that increases their sense of dignity and peace and their ability to work with each other mm. instead of creating all the disunity and conflict. Mm. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. John Woodall, a Baha'i living in Lunenburg, Massachusetts, who is a psychiatrist and founder of the Unity Project. If you want information on the Unity Project, you can go to the website www.unityproject.org. If you want information on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join us next time on A Baha'i Perspective. You are listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.